Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Days of Roar, a Detroit Tigers podcast brought to you by the Detroit Free Press. Last week, we did Days of Roar after dark. Today, we're doing Days of Roar after Tuesday. I'm Mark Gorash, and I'm here with Tigers beat writer Evan Petzold. Ev, you uh, had another hostage uh, crisis at the ballpark today. You've been there (laughs) for about 10 hours, and they played no baseball again, so... I'm laughing, but I'm not really laughing. So talk to me. It was a little bit of, you know, yeah, I was at the ballpark, but also I was at the Detroit Economic Club meeting um, earlier today. So it was kind of like a full day of work, but absolutely no baseball being played. Um, That doesn't mean that the story stopped. You go to Freep.com, you can check them all out. But yeah, I mean, it was a busy day without baseball, which was really weird. And then it's going to be a doubleheader on Wednesday and then uh, a quick turnaround for me with uh, an early flight on Thursday to Minneapolis for a a four-game series between the Tigers and the Twins at Target Field. So, yeah, it's been a lot of baseball, um, a lot of games in a row for the Tigers, a couple of postponements. I mean, look, they got postponed um, last week on Wednesday for the air quality in Philadelphia, and that was just kind of a a crazy situation, something that I've never seen before um, as a beat writer. I know it's happened a few times out on the West Coast, but that's just not – you know, that's just not normal, especially on the on, on the East Coast like that. So, so yeah, I mean, it was some weird baseball, also some bad baseball being played by the Tigers, just kind of across the board. They were able to get a win on Monday night in extra innings. That was a game that it looked like they were going to lose throughout the entire game. And then Andy Abanias, it's a home run in the seventh and sparks a little bit of a rally there. And the Tigers, you know, put up some really good at-bats in the eighth, ninth, and then in the tenth inning. Spencer Torkelson, he had a nice two-run home run in the ninth inning to kind of keep things going and, and keep him in the game there. Zach Short had a big hit in that one as well. And then, you know, Torkelson had the walk-off single in extra innings. Um, a really good game played by the Tigers, you know, when it comes to showing resiliency and showing fight. Uh, but that was coming off of nine straight losses. So Tigers have not been too good in, in June. It has been pretty rough. The offense has been as, as poor as you can imagine, worse than last year um, during this stretch. They're obviously missing Riley Green. The pitching staff has done a good job, I, I feel like, of, of holding up for the most part. They've had to go to bullpen games um, several times now, you know, this month. And, you know, they're bringing in long relievers left and right, and the guys seem to be holding up. So I think that's encouraging to see. But it doesn't really matter if your offense isn't getting it done, and the Tigers have not been doing much of that recently. So to sum up, because we like to do a fast week in review, last week the Tigers were winless, 0-6. Losing streak in total had extended to nine games. And then last, uh, and then Monday night pulled off a miracle, literally miracle comeback against the Braves in a game that, uh, looked like they were hanging off the edge of a building for the entire night until the seventh inning. 
uh, waiting to go down eight, nine, ten to ten to one, and somehow came back to win. Bravo! So it's exhausting, though, Mark, seeing them strand runners like that. I mean, I understand that they got the job done in the late innings, and that showed some fight. But yeah, that's been a problem all season long, just not being able to drive guys in when they're in scoring position. And we saw it over and over and over again in Monday's game, and it was just. You know, that, that's basically been the season in a nutshell, regardless if the Tigers are winning games or losing games. It just seems like they're stranding runners all the time. And we, we had the conversation. We've talked about it. We've talked about where that is at, you know, historically and how, you know, they could be one of the worst teams in baseball history with runners in scoring position when all is said and done. Um, they're not there yet, but they're, they're pretty close. I mean, they're, they're one of the worst teams in baseball history when it comes to that. So you know, if they want to avoid that, obviously they need to pick it up, but that just comes down to talent. It's, it's, it's kind of frustrating in that sense because there are so many missed opportunities. So many. We're going to get into the talent part of it. And to be honest with you, my partner, I'm real tired of discussing how terrible they are with runners and scoring position. They are (laughs) actually only 29th in major league baseball with the bases loaded. The only team worse, believe it or not, the Minnesota twins, but you know, they have a lot of terrible players are a lot of players that are being given opportunities to play in the major leagues for some the second and third time. Uh, I get it. They've had some successes. McKinstry, I would consider a success. Zach Short, uh, don't have words. I mean, Zach Short was hitting under 200 in the minor leagues. He has a 156 career batting average going into 2023. And to be honest with you, he's been one of the best players on the field the last three weeks. His defense at second base has been nothing short of spectacular. And he's really done a lot of great things. And last night he had two huge hits. And it's not the first game he's done that. But I don't really hey, want to. Look, you mentioned, but you mentioned real quick, you mentioned Zach McKinstry and, and how, you, you know, we've both been impressed about him. We both, you know, didn't think much of him when the Tigers traded for him. We apologize for that. He popped off in April and May and, um, was one of the Tigers' best hitters in May, aside from from Riley Green. I mean, it was the two of them just rolling. How's Zach McKinstry doing so far in June? He's batting 108 with one home run, one walk, and seven strikeouts. He's walk, four for 37. The lack of walks is a little alarming. But, so I think, so, but I'm basically <laughs> starting as it is. Like, it's water finds its level. I mean, this is still Zach McKinstry. You know, we got to see more and more of it. And we'll see if he gets back on track. Obviously, he can do it at this level. He He, he showed that he could do it. But the league's adjusted to him, spin down is uh, is troublesome for him. And, you know, when the league adjusts, it's about how you adjust back. So we'll see if he can make that adjustment back. I'm excited to see if he does make that adjustment back. There's a lot of things I could say about Zach McKinstry. Two things I will say in his defense, and it's kind of weird me defending him. But A, real smart baseball player, mm-hmm. understands the game, understands the intricacies of the game. I got a feeling he'll make some adjustment back. B, you know, to, you know, define point A, uh, look at how well he plays defense no matter where they put him. So, Such a strong arm. Such a strong arm. Good arm, good reads. Had a little bit of Magellan catch out there and right the other night, but the ball was spinning like crazy. It was tough. So, but enough for our 10 games under 500 Detroit Tigers. Um, and we'll get to what we should start expecting from them. You know, a little later in the show, we have, a lot of fun stuff tonight. We're going to do some things differently. We have two tremendous guests. We have Brian Sikowski, who's a VP of Perfect Game, 
We're going to discuss uh, a little bit about the 2023 draft. There's been some discussion lately, and we're going to do some time with Brian on that. There's nobody better to talk to. And uh, you talked to Colt Keith this week, and we have an a audio interview with Colt. Talks a little bit about what he's done to you know, supercharge what was already a pretty good season. And we have both those things coming up here tonight. So hopefully everybody will listen to the end after we get done droning on. So let's get right into the big two. First question of the big two. You were downtown today. There was a panel at, uh, what was it, the Economic Club of Detroit today? Yeah, the Detroit Economic Club. Right. Hosted the Tigers at the Motor City Casino for their annual luncheon. And Scott Harris showed face at the event, had some things to say to the to the people. So I've had a lot of things to say about Scott Harris this week. I pissed just about everybody off uh, about what I've had to say, but I say what I say. So you tell me what Scott had to say today and give me your thoughts about everything that transpired and, you know, give, give us what the in-person vibe was. Yeah, so just I want to, you know, start by saying that he was not available um, or he was unavailable to talk to reporters during or after the events. There were certain questions that maybe I would have wanted to ask that I, you know, wasn't able to ask. But what he did talk about was the process, uh, the progress that he has seen from the Tigers through 64 games this season. And he kind of hit on a couple key talking points when it comes to progress. And those talking points were the 16 and 11 record in May. The fact that the organization has started to take control of the strike zone, and he highlighted two data points being going from 20th in pitcher walks to 4th in pitcher walks right now, and then going from 29th in batter walks to 8th in batter walks right now. And then the other sign of progress was dynamic defenders, and the fact that the Tigers are actually pretty good defensively, um, and that's that's been a, a positive sign, I would say, for them, especially because at the beginning of the year, um, I viewed it as they they were struggling a little bit defensively. I think they were playing a little bit sloppy baseball and suddenly that changed and they've been been much better since. But starting with the first talking point, 16-11 record in May, that was the fifth best record in the American League, the seventh best record in Major League Baseball during that month. He viewed that as progress. Um, and then mentioning the two data points about the walks, um, the Tigers pitchers improved from an 8.5% walk rate in 2022 to a 7.6% walk rate in 2023. So walks for pitchers have gone down, which is a good thing. And then Tigers batters have improved from a 6.5% walk rate in 2022 to 9.1% walk rate in 2023. More walks for the hitters, that goes up. That's a good thing. Um, so that was kind of the, the the talking points that he had from a data standpoint. And then just to mention the defense as well, because that was a, a point that he made as well is... The Tigers are tied for second in MLB, along with the Arizona Diamondbacks and the Seattle Mariners with plus 11 outs above average on defense. The infield is worth plus seven outs above average. The outfield is worth plus four outs above average. Uh, the Tigers are above average at second base, shortstop, left field, and center field compared to the other 29 teams in the league. And also catcher Jake Rogers ranks in the 88th percentile for pitch framing. That's obviously a good thing. That means he's stealing strikes. Um, so yeah, that was another talking point. Those were kind of what what he touched on, um, speaking to about 400 members at the event, um, you know, for the Detroit Economic Club. So he was on the panel with Matt Shepard, Craig Monroe, AJ Hinch was up there. Um, obviously, again, no media availability with Scott Harris. So there were other things that you know I would have been interested to ask him about, but I think he still covered some things. And obviously, I, I really respect that he was able to 
not only say, hey, we're making progress, but to provide examples of that progress. I think that's important. Okay. Well, I think all those points are fair. Um, all those points are true. And, you know, essentially, he highlighted all the good things, uh, all the bad things, all the frank discussion about everything else that's going on absent. So to me, it was like buying an abandoned house, doing a pretty good job of cleaning up all the garbage outside, fix the landscaping. Uh, it looks presentable outside. And when you walk inside, uh, there's holes in the drywall. There's no kitchen cabinets. The floors are warped and uh, it needs a lot of paint and, you know, a lot of refurbishing. So we aren't going to discuss that part, though. So you can discuss what you want. And the fact that you're not taking questions, I know every beat writer is going to not say anything negative, but since I'm not a beat writer, what I will say, it's a little disappointing eight months after the man's been on the job that he really hasn't had an off the record or on the record discussion with any of the beat writers about what the heck is going on. So talked a little bit, but that's beside the point. Let's move on to the second question. All right. So second question this week is we're getting pretty close to having a starting rotation. So when do you think Tarek Skubal and Matt Manning start for the Detroit Tigers? It's got to be late June or early July, Mark, at this point. Um, you had Tarek Skubal, who has been transferred to AAA Toledo to continue his rehab assignment there. He pitched you know, two starts for high A West Michigan and then got the move to AAA Toledo. So he's going to make his first start for Toledo on Thursday. Matt Manning is going to make his second start for AAA Toledo on Friday. So those are the two guys that you're looking to get back. And yeah, you got to think... You got to think late June, early July. I know they've both been working on things with Chris Fetter, Robin Lund. I, I think that's one thing that you know you kind of hear guys talk about is, and it's maybe different than than in years past. Where in years past, the Tigers were very focused on just getting their guys healthy, getting them back to the big leagues. Tarek Skubal's worked on some stuff, and, and it'll be interesting to dive a little bit more into that with him. I know Matt Manning has tried to work on his fastball a little bit more and, and some things with his delivery to to sync it up. We'll see how that actually plays when he gets out and is, is competing back at the big league level. He was sitting like 93 uh, miles an hour with his fastball in his first rehab assignment. That's a little bit concerning because I would like to see that more at, you know, 95, 96. Everybody wants to see that because his fastball is so dynamic, but they're working on things. And I think that's important. And that's going to be interesting to see when they come back is, you know, how does that translate to the big leagues? What has Tara Skubal been working on with Robin Lund and Chris Fetter while he's been injured and, and recovering? And what has Matt Manning been working on and how are they going to implement it and how is it going to make them better? Because that's what it really all comes down to, right? I mean, Scott Harris's thing is like, we want players to develop at the big league level. We want to make guys better. You know, we want to create this culture of development and we're seeing signs of that, but now we got to see it on the field, right? Now we got to see the product. So it'll be interesting to see how both of those guys come back. But yeah, it's uh, it's coming soon and it's exciting. All right. So, you know, pitcher rehab and quality of pitcher stuff is a little bit in my wheelhouse. So what I'll say is I would expect Scooble to be back around the 25th of June. It's a game against Minnesota at home. 
I would expect either it'll be the David 25th or the 26th. This short break. And uh, I would expect either on the 25th or 26th, Matt Manning will also get his first major league start. So I think uh, Scoobs will have two more starts in Toledo. And then I think uh, Manning will also have two more starts in Toledo, and then they will both come up and be here. They're on a little bit of a different track. You know, Scooble had an arm injury. They have to be a little more careful. Uh, his changeup was just ridiculously good the last outing. And the angle of this, his slider was very good. I'll be interested to see if Major League hitters bite on it. But it was a back foot slider. It was really, really good. His fastball looked pretty snappy. I've seen better from him, but uh, his secondaries were were pretty good. Manning, um, not too concerned about the velocity. It was an easy 93. It was up to 95. Didn't seem too synced up. Was falling off gloves, glove side quite a bit. I uh, looked like Matt Manning, but I think I'll be much more interested to see this start. I think uh, just getting out there and throwing for it, he's already up to 45 pitches. He'll probably throw 60 to 70 this outing. I expect a lot more from him this time. And, uh, yeah, I think the velo will probably tick up a little bit. I'm not too worried about Man Manning's fastball. To, re- <clears throat> to be really honest with you, Man Manning, you know, based on Savant quality of fastball last year, if you extrapolate it to 150 innings, he would have had the fourth or fifth best fastball in Major League Baseball by fastball quality. So, you know, whether it's 93 or 95 or 97, he's getting people out with it and he throws it over 50% of the time. So do I like to think that they can improve upon it? Well, heck yeah, that would be great, but I'm not too worried about it. So I think that, like I said, they'll be back in the rotation here within the next 15 days. And, uh, you know, actually in the next, you know, 10 to 12 days. So I think you're going to have a totally different rotation by the middle of July. And based upon that, give me a, a little idea of what you've seen about Eduardo, Rodri- Ed, Eduardo Rodriguez. All right, Mark, I'll hit you with the Eduardo Rodriguez update. But first, let's take a quick break. And uh, yeah, we'll be right back. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. And uh, I'd like to uh, note this somewhere in the archives that uh, that was the first time that Evan Petzold ever threw us the break. And damn, he did a good job. So first time for uh, everything. First time for everything. But but no, you asked about Eduardo and we do have to talk about Eduardo Rodriguez briefly. Um, I was somewhat surprised at the fact that he didn't have to rest as long as he, he needed to. He's been cleared to start throwing and he hasn't been off a mound or anything like that, but it's started with light catch and the latest injury report details it as he has continued to progress his throwing volume and intensity daily. I think those are good things because from the doctor that I talked to, it was, Hey, you're going to have to shut it down for at least two to three weeks. That didn't happen. He went to go see a finger specialist while the tigers were in Philadelphia. 
um, got some news, you know, just there about the, the situation and the doctor cleared him to start throwing, um, and, and playing catch. So that's a really positive sign. And it makes me think that the initial timeline of eight to 12 weeks with approximately, you know, a 10 week window for a return to the tiger's rotation, that might not be 10 weeks. I mean, that, that might be significantly less than that. Now, I don't know exactly what the timeline is for, for him to get back. And you know what, look, maybe it still could be 10 weeks. Maybe there's something that I don't know, or there it's, it's a really long process um, to try to make sure that the finger's going to be okay. But he seems like he's on a, on a faster track than 10 weeks. Right. And I think that's well, here, the most look, positive sign for the Tigers. Let's, let's look at it this way. He's been, uh, he's been out 15 days, 30 days, will take us to the first game after the all-star break so now you're up to 45 days which is you know close to seven weeks maybe that's a timeline that hopefully is possible so for sure and that definitely is beneficial for the tigers especially with the trade deadline it's just important to get him back as soon as possible i'm um, obviously you don't want to rush it right because you don't want to risk you know any further injury and an overcompensation in one area um, which could lead to an injury in another area but if they can get him back, you know, before the trade deadline and, and give him an opportunity to make some starts before the deadline and really just remind the league what he can do, um, that will only be good for his trade value. Well, you know, let's talk about that for one quick second, which is there's going to be a lot more good starting pitching on the market than people think. I mean, Stroman will probably be on the market. You are going to have uh, Giolito might be on the market. Um Lance Lynn could be on the market. You know, there's there's going to be some arms out there, um, some pretty good arms, and you at least want to have a shot at trying to deal Eduardo for something of value if that's the direction you want to go. So it's pretty also pretty interesting that, you know, what do you think the starting rotation is going to be when we come back from the All-Star break? Well, it really just depends on if if he's healthy or not. I mean, if he's healthy and ready to go at that point. I mean, yeah, he's, he's in the rotation and you're going to have to move some guys around and shuffle some things again. Remember too, you know, Matthew Boyd is on a one-year deal. Michael Lorenzen is on a one-year deal. These guys are pitching really well. Um, also, so finding the right fit for all of those guys for that brief period of time between the all-star break and the trade deadline is going to be fascinating. It's going to be interesting to see how they maneuver it. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine that Alex Fajardo will be in the rotation. I can't imagine that, you know, Joey Wentz will be in the rotation. What um, about, and you got Reese Olsen and, too? And, I, and I, you can't guarantee that Reese Olsen is in that, that rotation either, because you're going to have, you know, is barring injuries, of course, you know, Aaron Scuba, you're going to have Matt Manning, you got Eduardo Rodriguez. If he's able to come back by that point, you got Michael Lorenzen and you got Matthew Boyd. And those are your five guys. And three of those guys, you want to market as starting pitchers on the trade block. So you got to have them pitching and you got to have them starting. So, That'll be interesting to see how Scott, you know, tries to navigate that and how AJ navigates that and what their game plan is just from that sense. But yeah, the rotation went from being, you know, absolutely no depth because of injuries, right. To, you know, we're going to get to a point here in early July where there might be quite a bit of depth, which is a good thing because that means they can part ways with some pieces if they can get something back. We'll see. Because from what we we're told they're going to emphasize young players being developed, right? They are. That's so what we were told. I concur that they're probably going to showcase some guys that are older so that they can uh, move them. But I would expect 
unless things totally break down, you're going to see Reese Olsen and Wentz and Fado, along with Manning and Scoobal in the rotation. Uh, probably by August 1st, that's going to be a good chance that's going to be five, you know, five guys that are likely starting, barring any injury, right? For sure. Okay. You also had a chance to talk for a minute to uh, a favorite of both of ours, Andrew Chafin, and uh, give us a fast one minute about what he said about coming back here and what transpired with that. Yeah. Andrew Chafin said he would have loved to come back to the Tigers. His, you know, actually what he, what he said was he would have been happy to come back to the Tigers after becoming a free agent in the off season. And look, I mean, push comes to shove. He could have come back to the Tigers and, and opted into his deal. Right. I mean, he declined his player option and decided to test free agency because he thought he could get a multi-year guaranteed contract. He was looking for two years guaranteed, maybe even three years guaranteed, especially after seeing, how the reliever market unfolded earlier in the off season. Um, but like, just to make that very clear, he did have the opportunity to come back to the Tigers and did decide that he wanted to leave and test free agency. So I think we do need to remember that in all of this. Um, but after that underwhelming experience where, you know, there's that quick grab on relievers and guys are going for, you know, two year deals, three year deals, and they're making a lot of money that kind of dies out as the off season goes on. And, you know, there's still no movement, no movement on on Andrew Chafin. And I wonder if part of that's because he's never been a closer. I wonder if part of that's, I don't know if age plays into that, or I don't know if that's maybe as simple as, you know, the the Bally Sports, you know, broadcasting rights and, and all that kind of stuff started to pop up in the offseason. And teams may be worried about, you know, the money that was coming in from from TV deals. I don't know what it was exactly, but suddenly the reliever market went pretty dry and that left Andrew in a rough spot where he didn't really have a, a, a home at the price that he was, you know, the money that he was looking to make, just to, to be quite frank. And so, yeah, I mean, Tigers communicated with Andrew Chafin. Andrew Chafin communicated with the Tigers. The agent talked to, to Scott Harris. Scott Harris talked to the agent. And Andrew Chafin is signing with the Diamondbacks. The terms of the deal, um, and we've, we've talked about this before too, but it was a one-year, $5.5 million contract. He can make up to $1 million in incentives for mm-hmm. at least 55 appearances. So that gets into that $6.5 million that he would have made with the Tigers had he you know, accepted his player option and returned to the Tigers for 2023. There's also a $7.25 million club option or a $750,000 buyout for the 2024 season. That's a club option. So the Diamondbacks can basically say, hey, we want you, we don't want you. And basically what Andrew Chafin said was, I'd be a Tiger right now if Scott Harris put that same offer on the table for me. Um, But that didn't happen, obviously. And so, yeah, things kind of became business and he took the best offer. Can't blame him. Yeah. And now he's a part-time closer for a team that leads the NL West and he got paid. Yep. So we'll we'll leave it at that. The Tigers obviously be a better baseball team with Andrew Chafin as part of what's been a pretty good bullpen, but I just wanted to make sure we were on the record for what transpired, who decided to do what. It's, you know, both both of them both both sides had an opportunity to do something, never came together. Probably Chafin's in a better place now. All right, I wanna wanna remind everybody that uh the Major League Draft is quickly coming upon us. This week, uh, the College World Series starts in Omaha. Tigers have the number three selection in this year's Major League Draft. Two guys that are going to be in the mix for the Tigers, probably at least one of them. Uh, you have Dylan Cruz, who's likely to go number one, and Wyatt Langford from Florida, who's an outstanding bat, also will be in Omaha. 
we talked to one of the foremost draft authorities in the United States, local boy Brian Sikowski. He's a VP for Perfect Games, seen all these guys play probably since they're 16 years old. He had a lot to say about what was going to go on uh, maybe in the draft. Talked a little bit about Kyle Teal, who has been mentioned as somebody the Tigers may also have some interest in. Talked about Paul Skeens, one of the best arms in the last 10 years. And just to go on record, this is one of the best drafts for talent in uh, the Rule 4 draft since 2011, which is a pretty legendary draft. So without further ado, uh, we're going to go to our piece that we did with Brian Sikowski a little earlier last week. I'd like to welcome the local boy Brian Sikowski, national cross-checker from Perfect Game. Obviously, in my mind, the foremost authority on the Major League Amateur Draft. How you doing tonight, Bri? Talking draft, man. How much better could it get? Yeah, thanks for joining us. Much appreciated. Always a good time and, and definitely a good time for Tigers fans to learn a little bit more about you know what might happen. I mean, the Tigers have the, the number three overall pick. They're drafting high once again. It's been a common occurrence you know, in recent history. The big question that everybody wants to know first and foremost is, is who's in the mix there at three? You know, it's... It's a top-heavy class for me. I think there's some depth in the in the prep. We can talk about that a little bit later. I think there's some depth in the prep bats class specifically, but it, there's a top five or six tier um, in this year's class. And for me, there's really a top three or four tier. But I think Wyatt Langford is probably the most likely guy right now, the outfielder from Florida. Uh, Dylan Cruz in that mix, if for some reason one and two pass on him. I don't think they're going to take Paul Skeens, the righty from LSU. I think that, that Harris is very much focused on college bats. Um, and then the, the two preps in the mix at Walker Jenkins and Max Clark, Kyle Teal's kind of a peripheral name uh, as far as a college bat goes. But I think you have to focus on if one of Cruz or Langford are there, they're probably going to be the pick. I guess, too, what is there to know about those guys? And you mentioned Scott Harris not really you know, knowing if he's going to take Paul Skeens. It is interesting because it's a whole new department for the Tigers with Scott Harris at the top as president of baseball operations, Rob Metzler, who was hired from the Tampa Bay Rays. He's overseeing amateur and international scouting. And then Mark Connor coming over from the Padres, and, and he's the scouting director. So whole new staff, you're right. But, but what are there to know about you know, some of those top guys? What do they do well, and what maybe value could they bring to a team? It's uh, it, those three in particular, the college guys that I mentioned, uh, Langford, Skeens, and Cruz are, are kind of your top tier. We're talking about Skeens as a guy who's probably the best college pitching prospect since Garrett Cole. And if it's not Garrett Cole, it's Strasburg, you know? So that level of caliber of player, everybody knows Skeens. They've watched him pitch. He's massive. He's 98 to 101 for 110 pitches. It's a 70 slider. Like we, we all know Paul Skeens, still a pitcher is the point, which is inherently risky. But Cruz and Langford are, are two of the better offensive upside type of players we've seen come out recently. Um, part of that is because they both provide defensive value. This isn't Torkelson, who's going to be a first baseman, even if he's announced as a third baseman for some reason. This isn't going to be you know something like that at the top, but it's it's going to be 
guys who provide value in multiple ways. Dylan Cruz has been the most famous player in the class since he pulled his name out of the 2020 draft uh, and decided to go to school. He is the presumed 1-1, the first guy we've had kind of unanimous wire-to-wire 1-1 since Adley Rutschman. Um, and just like a, he's everything. He plays center field. He's not going to be a, a dynamic plus defender out there. Um, would say just comparing for Tigers fans, he's probably not quite as good as Riley Green is in center, but he's not like a slam dunk to have to move to a corner, at least not early in his career. Um, but he hits everything. He was hitting 500 deep into the college baseball season, and he cooled off a little bit, but he's hitting 500 in the SEC with you know, not bats from the eighties. Like it's an impossibility type of thing that he was doing this year. I know that he knows the zone. I, I know the tigers want to control the strike zone under Scott Harris. That's kind of been his mantra. I'm assuming that's how he's going to approach the draft as well, but he owns the zone, doesn't swing and miss, doesn't chase his power is off the charts. He didn't hit as many home runs as other guys did in college baseball this year, but his 90th percentile exit velocity, his max exit velocity, his average exit velocity, all of those things point to 30 home run potential in the future. Uh, and he does that with a 70 grade hit tool. He does that with some peripheral tools. He is a guy. He is a roll seven type of guy. And now heading into this year, we thought that this guy's a seven. We had Langford with a six, had him a little bit down the board a little bit. Wyatt Lankford's probably also that good now. It's a different type of good, but he's probably also that good, maybe a half a grade below that if you're just looking at like OFP. But Lankford is, you could make the argument a little bit more explosive of an athlete. Uh, he'll burn faster down the line in terms of sprint speed. Um, that ticker on his Savant page will be higher than, than Cruz's uh, in terms of the sprint. Some 70 run times from him this year. Uh, I think he's going to be a plus defender in right field. Um, I think he's got a good arm hitting right-handed and playing an outfield corner. All of these things for Cruz and Langford, the Tigers would want, like it fits perfectly with what they need. Um, but anyways, Langford similarity in terms of the power, he has a little bit more lift to the stroke. So you saw a few more balls go out for him this year than you did for Cruz. I think it's very, very easy, tension-free, 70 bat speed with strength that plays. Um, he's hit since he got to Florida. He's hit for power since he got to Florida. I think he answered a lot of questions this year. And either way, either of those two guys got to be stoked on it if the Tigers get one of them. All right, Brian. I mean, I've, I've done some homework on this draft. It's early. We're going to probably revisit you right before the draft just to see what kind of intel we're able to get. And you're also pretty good at getting intel, but I think also I've been told that this is the best draft since 2011, which is a historically great major league draft. The first five players who are so good that in any other year, it's conceivable that all five of them are good enough to be a number one draft choice in other drafts. And so tell us a little bit about, we'll, we'll come back to Skeens, who is a unique pitcher, but I just don't see Detroit taking a pitcher after the Job experiment. I, I, I got to think they'll go heavy bat this time, but t talk a little bit about Max Clark and, uh, and Jenkins. Clark has to be the most famous high school baseball players since I, Bryce Harper. I don't know. You know, we didn't have Instagram back then, but Max Clark is like 400,000 followers on Instagram. So there's a certain amount of fame there. Um, that like that dude is more recognizable to your average 12 year old than 
some superstar big leaguer, I'm sure, just in terms of the visibility on social media and amateur baseball, blah, 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 blah. But not to, that doesn't mean anything for his profile as a player. Uh, Max Clark's really, really good. Uh, he's a 60 runner. Um, he's a 60 center fielder. It's a 60 arm in center field. I think it's a 60 hit. Uh, he's got some more power than I thought he did last year. That was my knock on him. It's I didn't think that uh, it's left-handed. I, I didn't think his power was going to to show up at an above-average level. I didn't think the the swing path worked in that way. It just I missed because he made a swing change in the off season and he looks fantastic now. He lofted balls out all spring, uh, really back spinning balls. Pull side was back spinning balls in the opposite field gap, which is really really. Uh, difficult to do um, did it against some velocity uh, did it with ease it's all kinds of performance it's all kinds of moxie uh, it's all kinds of um, some superstar traits there with, with Max Clark high school bat long ways away so here's a question Cruz and Langford go one two okay um, mm-hmm. the Tigers don't want to take a pitcher do they have a discussion with both Walker Jenkins and Max Clark to see who they can make the better deal with and go in that direction? Yeah, it's my understanding that they prefer Jenkins to Clark, uh, the Tigers specifically. Um, I don't know if a potential deal would outweigh such a thing, uh, but as we saw a couple of years ago, that doesn't that's not always how you want to approach these things. But uh, with that being said, I, I think that you have to have that talk because the other talk is then, okay, do we take a pitcher again or are we really going to cut a deal with our next tier college bat, whether that's Kyle Teal, whether that's whoever, Matt Shaw, Jacob Gonzalez, whatever. Um, I think that if Langford and Cruz go one, two, then you have to get creative. If you, if you get Langford or Cruz, you can go chalk. If both of them are gone, I think you have to get creative. And they have the money to potentially do that this year. But yeah, Mark, to answer the question, like you should absolutely have a discussion about both Clark and Jenkins because both of them are really good. All right. Uh, we've we've heard a few rumors that they've heavily scouted Kyle Teal, who's a catcher. Talk to us about Kyle. He's a unique player. He was a super unique player in high school at, at East Coast Pro uh, his year. He actually played all nine positions on the field during a game. Um, they let him do the, the Shane Halter or whatever that was to kind of show his versatility. Uh, but he's a catcher by trade. He's kind of in the new wave of catchers. And by new wave, I mean he's kind of more live and athletic than he is bulky and physical. Um, he can really move side to side. The lateral agility is good. That's what you want in this age of everybody throws 100 and everybody throws a 92-mile-an-hour sliders now. You have to be super athletic and move well to be a catcher at the big league level. Uh, it's plus arm behind the plate. He controls running games pretty well. I, I don't know. I'm not smart enough to project how the rule changes to Major League Baseball with the bases or whatever are going to impact how I evaluate amateur catchers yet. But uh, he's a spray it gap to gap guy there's some juice there but mark i think it's like a if you're taking that guy the 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 thought is he's your starting catcher like he's your anchor behind the plate for a long term but he's also not quite on that tier of the other guys and i think you'd have to save there if you were going to do that yeah it's not you know it's 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 the smartest guy in the room play to me and you know ab knows that i hate smartest guy in the room plays until you prove me prove to me you're the smartest guy in the room so Brian, you mentioned maybe taking a, a catcher and, and saving just for listeners that 
you know, are kind of new to understanding the draft and kind of what all goes into it, especially behind the scenes in that way. What does that kind of mean? And could the Tigers do something like that either, you know, with a guy like Kyle Teal or maybe somebody else? Yeah, I think this year it's, if they were picking like seventh or eighth, you'd be more likely to see it this year. There's a pretty good chance that they'll have one of the the top tier, but generally speaking, what that means is um, in the MLB draft, you are assigned a certain amount of money depending on how many picks you have and where those picks are. Each pick has a a value, um, a slot, if you will, a slot value. And you can only spend the total allotment of, of what you've been given with all those picks added up. That's all you're allowed to spend to sign players. So when I say save, I mean like the Tigers pick at three. I don't know exactly what the slot is there. Let's just call it 8 million for round numbers. Um, if they were to take a guy that only would wants five to sign, then they take that guy, they pay him five mil at pick three. Now they have three more million dollars to spread down the board. And that's what we mean by saving. Um, so that at pick 37, instead of only having 1.2, maybe you can give a guy 2.5. Now you have that extra money and then you can do that further and further down the board. If you want, uh, the Orioles are really, really good at that. Um, for example, that's, that's something that Elias has been really, really good at there. And that's how they add three or four impactful prospects a draft, uh, instead of, instead of maybe one or two, they're also really good at evaluating, which is kind of what you have to be. But, but yeah, to, uh, to answer your question, it's, it's a way to get creative. It's a way to potentially grab, like, again, just using round numbers instead of getting the second best player in the draft. And then the 52nd best player in the draft, you can have the ninth 14th and 20th best players in the draft or something like that so depending on what you want or how you'd want to do it so it would be a strategy that if you've proven to be really shrewd at evaluating maybe the board says certain players are in a certain bucket or you know they're the fifth best or 23rd best or whatever you obviously have your own methodology of evaluating and you're able to get you know a bulk of a greater amount of players because you often have evaluated certain players to be either better or worse than everybody else has that's what you it's something that comes with experience and evaluation and like obviously the 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 data and the metrics are playing a larger role in scouting now than they ever have and that's nothing but a good thing because the more we can understand these players the better um but it's it's uh yeah mark it's more about uh i agree with you the the summation of it is you can do that you just better be really good at scouting you better be really good at evaluating baseball players so it it, it would be making me nervous if in year one of the harris regime they were getting that clever with maybe what is the most talented draft since 2011 from a talent standpoint. All right. There's the Tigers have a couple other high picks, right? Why don't you share with us where those are and some of your thoughts about that, how deep the draft is. Yeah. They, they pick at 37 and 45 uh, as far as their next two picks go. Those are obviously both uh, good spots to be in. Um, there's a, some significant slot value assigned to those picks and having an extra pick at 37 is beneficial, not only to have that pick, but to have that extra money in your pool overall. Um, so I think that you can do some creative things there, even if you stay chalk at three, you know, even if you take Wyatt Langford and you have to pay him what slot is at three, which is what I mean when I say chalk. Okay. Now you still have more money than a lot of other teams because you have that extra supplemental pick. So you can get creative at 37 and, and on down. Um, and, and something like that would be Harris really identifying a hitter that he likes that 
isn't necessarily a, a higher profile guy, isn't necessarily a guy with, with peripheral tools, but Scott identifies him as a player he really likes who owns the zone in the way that, that Harris wants the team to be ran, et cetera, et cetera. You, you get him at 37 and pay him $750,000 or whatever it is. And then at 45, we're talking about maybe we have a dude who's ranked in the 20s who's getting all the way there because you can pay him more at 45 than what any team in the 20s can even pay him. Unless they wanted to go over slot, which is another phrase you'll hear me use a lot, but um, it's it's a wild, creative, m- multi-dimensional chess game that's moving at all times. That is primarily dependent on agents picking up the phone. I do think it's interesting. You mentioned you know what Scott Harris might want in terms of controlling the zone, but like I mentioned earlier, they also got Mark Connor to oversee everything, both amateur and international scouting from the Rays. And then Mark Connor from the Padres as the, the scouting director. And, you know, a lot of Mark Connor's players ended up in trades. I, I know Preller, you know, can make some crazy decisions over there in, in San Diego. But a lot of those prospects that he drafted were used to go and, uh, and get some dudes. I guess just what do you know about the way that the Rays and the Padres run their drafts and how maybe could that impact the type of players that the Tigers are interested in? Sure. The Rays are, the Rays are good at this. Uh, you know, we talked about a little bit pre-show. The Rays are really good at development and they're, they're really good at evaluation too. That's, you know, they're good at, at the sport. Um, but it's the Rays in particular on offense. They are attracted to exit velocity. They're attracted to, um, the ability to make contact within the strike zone as well as obviously subsequently the ability to not swing at pitches out of the strike zone. So you're, it's the control the zone thing that we talk about with Harris, but also they like impact. Like impact is important to them. Like we don't care if you control the zone at all if you're hitting the ball softly and you're, you know, you're not a power guy. Um, a good example is literally their first rounder last year is Xavier Isaac, a high school first baseman who did not play on the summer circuit because he was hurt the summer before. They just they drafted this guy out of nowhere. Not out of nowhere. Xavier Isaac was a known name, but he wasn't expected to go that high. Um, and especially with a risky profile like that, they took that guy because they identified those traits that they hold dear. Um, and he checked all those boxes for them. So they, hey, let's take this guy. And now we're a long ways away from Xavier Isaac proving if he's good or not. But the early signs are really, really good. Um, so that that goes back to trusting your evaluation, trusting your board, trusting your process. And I think that 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 control the zone with some impact, it sounds like obvious to say, but it's really not obvious in practice. A lot of teams don't necessarily focus on those traits and those components, but um, those those things combine the raise, the uh, the influence from there, the influence from the Giants, those those guys with different thoughts. It, sh- it should look pretty good. Uh, we'll see, though, obviously. And as far as pitchers, I mean, Currently, the Detroit system for pitching is it's, yeah, it's like a desert. They they have very very few high end arms. They have very few of anything to be really blunt about it. So philosophically, you know, how's this particular draft for depth of pitching talent? And any thoughts about you know how Connor and Metzler may approach this draft? Uh, you know, to try to start restocking the Detroit system for pitching talent. I mean, so I think you have to start with the the same philosophy we talked about with hitters is, is the importance of owning the strike zone. So I, I don't think you're going to see um, guys drafted with high walk rates or anything like that, whether it's high school or college. But um, I think most importantly is identifying the things that you know for a fact you can make better. 
so much of, even if the guy's 23 years old or whatever, so much has to develop between from the time he's drafted to the time he's a major leaguer. Uh, that's why the MLB draft is the biggest crapshoot of them all. But uh, with that being said, I, I, like I said, I think you have to to really, I think this year we'll probably get a better understanding than we did in the Avila years of what the Tigers see their developmental bread and butter to be. We know that they're good at developing pitching. They, they've proven that. That's the one thing they've proven in the last several years is, is we can do we can develop pitching. We can make pitchers who are X good and develop them and make them Y good, Y better, whatever. Um, now, I think that the most fascinating part is instead of getting guys who are kind of middling to just okay and making them average, let's get some guys with some real firepower. Let's get some guys with some real ability, some tools, some some you know, high profile traits that we can make from exciting into really, really, really good. And uh, identifying what those traits are in particular, who they draft, that will tell us a lot about what they what they see the organizational philosophy being from a pitching development perspective. But yeah, it's going to be on the zone. I would imagine it's going to be college heavy. I'm disappointed in the college pitching crop this year. So many guys from that class got hurt. Uh, there's a lot of guys who had Tommy John that teams are going to draft based on, okay, it looks like the surgery went well and we liked what you looked like beforehand. Uh, I think there's a chance for the Tigers to maybe, you know, take a swing on a guy in that sense. Um, if, if you like the way the medical looks and you'd really identified the guy beforehand as, as a player that you'd like, who had traits that you like, now maybe you can get that guy cheaper um, because he's hurt. And, and obviously that comes with some risk. But but either way, it's I think that this year, this draft, will again illustrate a picture of who's really good at this because so many of those college pitchers, which are generally viewed at as, as like a safety layer of the draft, so many of them are hurt and so many of the ones we thought were good weren't real good this year. Some of those guys are going to be excellent. We just don't know which ones. And when we see which teams identify and draft those players, like eventually how good they're going to be, uh, tell us a lot about that but uh, my point and i'm rambling my point being like it's a it's a kind of a wide open crop of pitchers after the top tier depending on what you like what you value it's going to line up differently team to team and i'm really fascinated to see which of those guys the tigers have identified that they like in particular in this new regime yes yeah, so I'm, I'm curious too just because i know you know where the tigers are at right now and obviously you've been doing this for a really long time when you look back, you mentioned Alavila's name, so we gotta we gotta bring him up really quick. How, how much of his failings kind of fall back on the draft? Do, do you think? I mean, I, you can look at the Justin Verlander trade, you can look at the JD Martinez trade, you can look at signings that that went wrong, Jordan Zimmerman being one of them. But how much of all this kind of boils back to the draft, and and maybe how important is the draft moving forward? I mean, that was the first place that that Scott Harris cleaned out when he got the job. I think that. Um the biggest failures of the drafts of the Avila era weren't necessarily picking the wrong guys. It was a, li- a limited understanding of what they did well developmentally. It was not really having that archetype or, or those identifiable traits that you know were good with these pe- with these types of players, were good with developing these guys. It just always felt like there was no real cohesion between player dev and scouting in terms of you know, like I just said, player dev saying, hey, get us more of this type of player and scouting going, you bet, let's do it. And, and then those marrying together into stocking a system in the way that you want to and developing it the way that you want to. I don't think that they necessarily took the wrong players all the time. I just, like I said, I think it was more like a, 
they took the right player for a different team. You know, they took a player who could have been really good if he went somewhere else. Um, and that's not necessarily a failure of scouting is, or a failure of dev. It's a failure of, of having a, a cohesion between the two. Personally, I think prior to 2019, one of the biggest failings of the Avila draft philosophy, if there really was a draft philosophy, is that, you know, beyond the first round, they were terrible. They, they, they hit on almost nothing. And, you know, that now later they hit on Scoobal in the ninth round. And there's stories about why they drafted Derek Scoobal that are, you know, pretty well authenticated. They have a lot to do with his agent. You know, Scott Boris was his agent and kind of talked him up and got the Tigers to draft him in the ninth round coming off of TJ. Um, Colt Keith in the fifth round in, in 2021. So, I mean, they've, they've done better. Uh, got Dingler. You know, you know, at the same time, they really had no philosophy. So, I mean, and we could talk an infinitum about the Jackson Joe Marcelo Mayer debacle, but it's it's Brian shaking his head. It's it's <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. Well, I mean, I, I can remember we we were all pretty together on that night and it was just something that was unimaginable in the in the explanation of why they did it was even goofier than not doing it at all so when marcelo mayor got past two i put my hands up i was like like i'm I'm supposed to be unbiased right i was like, oh yeah like you know because i knew they had a one on the board and then but you know and i don't want it to sound like i'm disparaging the guy they took instead I, i i had joe graded as one of my highest grading pitching prospects of all time but the same he's a high school pitcher. You can't do it that high, probably, you know, but that whatever, we could talk for an hour about that. It doesn't well, there is another, scena- there is another scenario I want to ask you about Jace Young or Zach Neto, because I had heard that, you know, those were two names that the Tigers were back and forth between who did you have higher on your list? I had Neto ahead by two spots. Um, it was not a big gap. I'm not going to sit here and say like, I had Neto with an entirely different grade than, than Jung, but um, but did have Neto ahead by a little bit. It was the fact that he plays defense that wanted out for me. Uh, plays defense at a at a level that gives value. I'm not saying that Jace can't play defense. It's just Zach is a, a valuable defender at shortstop. Um, that's kind of what it came down to for me. I, I understand that the Tigers, uh, under the old regime, really, really valued big conference performance, particularly in Texas. So that was kind of always going to be their pick, I think. Uh, but yeah, did have Neto ahead, just but just by a little bit. Brian, just, you know, we've talked about this a little bit in the last few months, but why don't you share, you know, some arms you think the Tigers have been on or some, you know, pitching maybe that they'll be looking at uh, with their two draft picks, you know, between 30 and 50 and maybe some other other gossip you're hearing about the type of things that they've liked. Yeah, it's it's tough to say because this is a new regime. We're going to find out what they like, and we don't know that yet necessarily. So it's a little bit tougher to figure uh, in a year like this. But I think that a guy like uh, Jerron Watts-Brown from Oklahoma State is a name that you should watch. I don't necessarily know that they are super high on him. I just think that he checks a lot of the boxes that the Seattle Mariners like, and the Seattle Mariners like dudes who miss bats and own the zone. So I think like if you were just following a, an intelligent pitching development thinking process, that guy might be someone to watch at 37. Um, just a, 
he's a strike thrower who needs to throw harder, who needs to gain more velocity, who needs to work on a third pitch, but it's a great delivery. He throws a bunch of strikes and it's a plus slider. So all those boxes checked, I think, with some projection more so than your average college guy. I'm kind of in and, there. And you feel like you can, you know, a team can optimize a player if they have, you know, a, a delivery that's synced up. Yes. Yes. That's the first thing we look at really is the delivery, how it works together. And your first instinct is to like, take a look at a, a guy throwing one pitch and go starter or reliever, you know, based on how the delivery looks. But, um, obviously it's more intensive than that. But for me, you know, it, and for everyone else, it's not like I'm some kind of unique super scout. It's just, for me, it's, if you, if you have a good delivery, if you're online, if you're directional, if you're timed up really well, which is something that seems to be lost a couple times. And by timed up, I mean where your arm is when your foot lands for the folks listening in radio land. Um, it's that stuff is what really gets me excited. I don't really care how hard you throw. If I really like your delivery and you can spin the ball because everybody can develop velocity. Now it's not, it's not rocket science anymore. Like you will throw harder as soon as you go into pro baseball for the most part. So for me, identifying those guys with, with great deliveries, with starter traits who can spin the ball and we know we're going to add velo to you. Those are the guys that I'm kind of interested more in as pitchers. I don't, I don't care who throws a hundred right now. It doesn't, it doesn't matter it, who's going to throw 103 years, you know, it's on the money. And I think that's where the tigers are headed. Yeah, it's, I, I agree. I still think dominating the zone is probably where they're at, and hopefully they're a little more synced up at developing a pitching philosophy. All right, Brian, you, uh, as always, just a wealth of information. Uh, I want to remind everybody we're going to try to check back with Brian right before the draft and do another segment. I'm sure that we'll have a little better intel as to what's going on, but we'd like to Thank you for spending a half hour with us, and uh, we'll we'll look forward to touching base before we draft in July. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, fellas. It was a good time. All right. Yeah, thank thanks you. a lot. All right, Ed, you had an opportunity to talk to one of the best hitting prospects in the minor leagues, Colt Keith, this week. We're going to run what you had to say with them right after this break. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. All right, so you had a chance to talk to Cole Keith this week. He's uh, OPSing a thousand player of the week in the Eastern League for the month of May. It's been hitting over 370 for the last six weeks. Just absolutely tearing the cover off the ball, playing a little second base. Done a few things. Probably the best hitting prospects the Tigers have had at least since Riley Green, he's actually far surpassed what Riley did at Erie. And I found it kind of strange, just between you and I, that they were saying how much more seasoning they think he needs. And I looked up how many games Torkelson and Green played before they were in the major leagues. And Keith has played pretty much the same amount of games as both Riley and Spencer Torkelson have 
flight. Well, I think that's the thing too, Mark, is like you can say, yeah, Cole Keith is young because he's 21, but Riley Green is in the big leagues at 21, right? You know, Cole Keith turns 22 in, in August. I mean, this guy isn't just a, I mean, he's not some teenager. It's not like he's 18 and he's just getting into A-ball. This is a guy who's tearing it up at the, at the double-A level, right? I mean, right now he's hitting 332 with a 404 on base percentage, a 597 slug, 12 homers, 16 doubles. He's got two triples that he's tossed in there. He hit for the cycle as part of a six-hit game with two triples and 24 walks, 51 strikeouts. So it's not like he's not drawing walks. It's not like he's striking out too much. I mean, the guy literally doesn't chase. Um, I mean, there's so many good things to say about him. And that's not even about who he is as a person. Like he's the most mature prospect that I've talked to in a long time, just in the sense of knowing what he wants and and being determined to to go get it. I mean, he's worked with um, Olympians. I mean, he has worked, you know, timelessly on ground balls to, to, to shore up his defense. He's picked apart his game and each offseason has gone in and worked on something to try to, to try to find answers, to try to make himself better. I mean, he is he told me he's determined to be, you know, one of the best baseball players, and that's real. Um, and you can kind of hear it. It's not flipping. It's it's no, like that's the expectation for myself. And so obviously, I mean, when you expect all that and you get to the big leagues and you struggle, it's like, okay, how do you handle that? And he's gonna come across that at some point, but the way he's tearing it up, it's like, I mean, look, and I talked to him about it. I talked to him about it. And he kind of mentioned, he made it seem like at least that he just wasn't being challenged at the double A level. And I don't think he is when you look at what he's doing on a night in night out basis. And yes, yeah, so we said, you know, look, I got to kind of like reevaluate some of my goals that I set. I think it's because he's surpassing a lot of the goals that he set. And he also said that um, he doesn't know how much longer he's going to be in double A Erie, maybe the whole year, he said. And if that's the case, he says he needs to keep finding ways to challenge himself and stuff like well, that. Well, he's missed. Uh, it's not played since Saturday. Rumor is he's got some arm fatigue. Um, I'm sure he'll be back in the lineup here pretty quickly. Or they'll actually announce the reasons why he hasn't been playing. But yeah, we'll 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 see about that too. I hear the Tigers are supposed to have a an injury report coming out. Maybe that'll be out on Wednesday. So for you know, listeners that are that are tuning in, um, you know, he might be on that injury list by the time that this podcast gets out. But yeah, it does sound like arm fatigue, and the Tigers are being cautious, keeping him out. Um, so hopefully that doesn't end up in a in an IL stint. Um, that would be no good, of course. But um, obviously, it's kind of just wait and see on that to see how the the arm All responds. Right. So with uh, no more uh, with uh, without further ado, here let's uh, go to your piece in your interview with Kolke. Yeah, let's send it over there. He talked a lot about swing changes that he made um, and something that he found a fix with before uh, before heating up in the month of May. He, he kind of attributed that to the reason why he won Player of the Month. So let's end it there and hear what he has to say. Yeah, for me, I, I was losing a little confidence in my approach because I was chasing pitches and stuff like that. Mm. And for me, it ultimately ended up being a swing change that changed everything. Oh. Um, so I was, I was, when I get all through my whole life, whenever I get uh, pressure or like I go through a slump, what I want to do is I want to get down low and kind of crouch down and kind of just get into like a power position and just put the ball in play. And for me, that does the opposite. And I didn't really figure that out until a couple of weeks ago or about a month ago. Um, well, actually, you can literally look at the stats and see exactly when it turned around. 
it was beginning of May. We were playing Portland at home, and I got like three hits in the series and struck out a bunch. But anyways, it was... I went from crouching to just standing straight up in the box and just lifting my leg and swinging hard at strikes. I mean, what I thought was a strike. And I think for what that did for me is my head movement stayed still and I was able to see the pitches a lot better. Because when I'm crouched down, I, I tend to leap towards the pitcher and whenever your head's moving and you're hitting, that's when you get in trouble. Right. So I think that was the thing. So it was kind of a swing change for me. My approach never changed. But I was... I was losing faith in my approach because I was crouched down, moving my head around, and I wasn't—it wasn't working. Um, you know, I was panicking a little bit, but that's what it's all about. You know, I like—I like that there's levels to baseball. You don't just go straight to the big leagues because you know this is something that I needed to learn. This is a big lesson. Um, you know, and now I know that after you know me and Max Gordon and and Jeff Branson, we watched. About hundreds of videos from all the way back to high school days and we figured out one common thing is that whenever I'm crouched down that's when I'm struggling and that's when I'm not hitting well but if you watch it all every video when I'm raking it's me standing straight up it's me staying tall you know just looking like a lot of confidence in the box um you know I, that's how I was in the fall league it's, we watched videos I was standing straight up um you know, I struggled a little bit sometimes in my senior year. And you go back to videos like that, I'm crouched down, wow. crouched down. Even like my first my first year in pro ball, if you go look at my video from Instructs, my first year when I first got up and was struggling, when I had no power, it all goes back to that. I mean, it, I'm crouched down. I mean, I, I know you got videos from all the way back. You know, right, right. Once you point it out, it's pretty, pretty obvious. I mean, if you watch my swings from the last month, I'm standing straight up in the box. Look, watch my videos, my best swings from high school. It's the same thing. So, I mean, that swing change was huge for me. I'm happy I've learned something about my body in that way. And, um, you know, so far it's been a month straight of me just seeing the ball well, being really comfortable. So I'm excited about that. And, you know, other than that, I mean, the Eastern League, I'm really happy with how I've adjusted, like I said, and, and also, you know, I, I wasn't overwhelmed by the competition. You know, it's just the same old game that we've been playing, and it's nothing different. Uh, for some reason, every time I move up, I think it's going to be this crazy difference in, in the game's pace and play and how the pitches move, but it's just the same old thing. Um, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with how I'm hitting, but also I've put a lot of work in on defense, and I'm happy with how that's progressing. Um, getting a lot better on defense, more comfortable, um, increasing my mobility, get side to side, and uh, stuff like that. But overall, sure. I think I think I'm on I'm on a good track for this year, and uh, you know, hopefully, I can just keep that going. So. All right, Ab, that was that was some really great stuff. Um, I wanted to add something that I've been thinking about when we're discussing you know, being challenged from double A to the major leagues. And I'll leave it at this. Um, Michael Harris, rookie of the year last year, in the national league center fielder for Atlanta, uh, was brought up from double A. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zach Neto playing shortstop for the Los Angeles angels has his average up to two fifty three. by the way, super athletic. 
was brought up from double A. Mm-hmm. Now, in defense of the situation, both those guys are ridiculously good defenders. It is something that Colt Keith is not. But uh and, and they're playing for win now teams. I mean, look at what the, the Braves were able to do last season, right? I mean, they they won 101 games, right? I mean, it's it's a little bit different than the situation that the Tigers are in right now, I would say. Well, the bottom line is mature guy. You could just hear it from the adjustment that he, you know, was willing to make, even though he was still hitting the ball well. Um, and it really helped him take off. It was really interesting to hear his perspective on things and I don't think there's much argument. You and I are excited to see him, excited to see him in the major leagues, excited to see him face some adversity and see how he handles it, but uh, need the bat in the lineup to say the least. So uh, it was a a great piece, and hopefully maybe we can revisit with him once he gets here, you know, what he thinks, and we we can touch base with him again. It's a little different show this week. We... We tried to bring a little bit different perspective. God knows it's getting tiring watching a team lose every day. So we tried to switch things up on the show a little bit. Maybe we're going to try to do this a little bit more from time to time because I think it was interesting for us too. We're going to go play Minnesota here. Hopefully they're going to start playing better. And here's something I've been giving some thought to before we get out of here. I think that my frustration level went down a little bit the last few days because I've resigned myself to the fact that the Tigers are playing a lot of bad players and they're missing their two best players, which are Eduardo Rodriguez and Riley Green. But at the same time, I think uh, come the first week of July, whether it's after the All-Star break or just before, you're going to have a lot of injured players coming back, whether it's Riley, Scoobal, Manning, even, maybe even Eduardo, maybe Brisky gets sprinkled in there a little bit too. You have a much different team, and I think you will probably start to see over the course of July, maybe them bring up some players from Toledo to see what they can also do. So the Parker Meadows, the Justin Henry Malloy's. Justin right. Henry Malloy. Andre Lipsius, I'd see Maybe, him. I'm okay with that. You're, you're going to see some players get brought up. And it may be, in fact, that Harris is just trying to be a little bit more patient, and you'll see a much more competitive, much more progressive, much more what the team may at least functioning look like in 2024, maybe in July. So with some hope that that's what's going to transpire, I'm going to be less frustrated how atrocious they've looked in the last 10 days and tip my hat to A.J. Hinge for actually having them as competitive as they were prior to that. You got you got any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think obviously something's going to have to change at some point. We're going to see you know, guys shuffle in and out. I mean, there's guys in the 40-man that they need to get looks at. Wenzel Perez is in double-A, but that's the guy that they're going to have to get a look at at some point because you have to figure out whether he's somebody that you want to keep around throughout the offseason, whether it's somebody you want to try to look to trade. Is he going to be a bench piece? Is he going to be a long-term piece? Like, if you're on the 40-man, you're going to get an opportunity, and that's why I mentioned Lipschitz when I did. 
And that's also why I think, you know, Parker Meadows is in that mix. And Wenzel Perez, if we're talking about the offense, um, and then obviously Justin Henry Malloy is, is knocking on the door and he's going to get his opportunity at some point as well. And, you know, if they're going to move Cole Keith up to, you know, the triple a level, once the, the halfway point of the Erie season, you know, kind of hits, which is coming up pretty soon. If, if that happens and maybe in September, he finally gets his call either way, they're going to have to give these young guys an opportunity. Minor leaguers are going to come up at some point. You'd have to think. Um, there's no way that the Tigers are going to keep running out there with the lineup that they have right now. Um, it's just, it's it's just not productive. I mean, it's it, it just doesn't work. I mean, the, the Nick Maton, the Andy Abanez, even Eric Haas, Jake Marisnik, like that's just not that's not what you want. You'd rather see. I mean, look. I mean, you'd rather see Parker Meadows than than Jake Marisnik, right? I mean, that that's you need to see that to understand what you have long term. Um, the Nick Maton situation, if, if he can't figure out how to hit up here at this level, you're going to have to get somebody else in there. And it sounds like that could be a Malloy or a, or a Lipsius. And I'd rather see one of those two guys um, play. And I think it's kind of the same thing for Andy Abanez. He's been hotter as of late, but, you know, he's been streaky. And, you know, the track record isn't great in the big leagues. It's pretty good in the minor leagues, but it's not great in the big leagues. The same is true for Tyler Nevin, who was, you know, recently sent down. So we're going to see that revolving door. It's going to happen at some point. And some other guys are going to get some opportunities and, and get some looks. But right now, the Tigers seem to just be rolling with what they have. And you know, we'll see how things look when they get healthy. Yep. I think there's going to be, hopefully, I'll be pretty disappointed if there aren't quite a few changes in the month of July. And hopefully, if you're going to lose, let's lose with guys that might be part of the future as opposed to what we've been rolling with for the last 30 days. All right, I want to remind everybody that uh, we'd love them to uh, rate, share, and subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts. You can always find us at Freep.com and any article that Evan Petzl writes. You know, you can find us at Spotify, Apple, uh, Google, Stitcher, you name it. We're Amazon. We're pretty much everywhere. I'd like to thank our executive producer, Kirk Crawford, our other executive producer, Anjanette Delgado, and our producer, Robin Chan. As always, I'd like to give a shout out to my grandson, Braden Michael Gorash, and to Evan's fiance, Savannah, who's always been so patient in letting us do this stuff every week. So for my partner, Evan Petzold, I'd like to say peace. Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.